Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland, so that we can help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. You can always join us in person each Sunday at 8.30 a.m. and 11 here on our beautiful campus in Rock Spring, Georgia. Hey, if you have your Bibles or your digital device, would you turn to James chapter 1? James chapter 1. I started a sermon series just a couple weeks ago entitled Real Religion, Testing Trials and Temptations. And we are going through the book of James and we're looking at kind of where the rubber meets the road. James is a very practical writer. He's a very practical preacher. And so what happens sometimes, the reason we're calling it real religions, we're borrowing a phrase that's kind of at the end of the chapter. Uh, But here's what happens. We have Sunday, we'll call that the classroom. And then we have Monday, we'll call that uh, real life. And so what happens sometimes is there is a disconnect between classroom in real life, not in our own lives, but just in putting into practice what we learn. Now, you had that in high school. Man, some of you teenagers, and how many of y'all are middle school and high school? Let me see your hand over there. A bunch of them over here, back there, yeah. You adults, you remember that? You remember what we called it? Test anxiety. Remember that? And your teacher would, on Monday, she, he or she would go over everything you need to know for the test, and you think, I got this. And then Tuesday, the test would come, and... Uh, you couldn't remember anything she said the day before. And that's why you wrote it on your, no, no, you didn't do that. Um, uh, so you prayed hard because it was, it was just different when you actually had to do it yourself. And sometimes we have test anxiety in the Christian life. That is, it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to take sometimes what we learn on Sunday and when Monday rolls around, because I'll be honest, we feel like on Sunday, we can just whip the devil, right? Like, I got this, man. The choir sings like that. The praise team sings like that. And we're like, I got it. There's no praise team on Monday morning at work. It's just you and the devil and the world, and it's harder. So what James does is James takes the, uh, the classroom experience, and he tries to just get it down on the lower shelf where the rubber meets the road. So we've looked at how, how he's done that with trials. We've looked at how, has he, how he's done that with temptation. And today I want to preach on this subject. Somebody is watching you. How many of you have ever read the book, uh, George Orwell's 1984. Anybody ever read 1984 yeah, a, long, a long time ago? Now, I'm, I'm not, it's not a Christian read. I'm not saying it's got Bible in it or anything like that. Definitely does not. But George Orwell wrote the book in 1948, and he was, it was his vision of what 1984 would be like. And he missed the year, but he's not off by much. In the book, 1984, uh, the main character is a guy named Winston, and the antagonist is the government. We called him Big Brother. Everywhere you went... In 1984, there were cameras that were watching you. And so when you were out in public, there were cameras everywhere. When you were in your own private home, there were cameras everywhere. There was something called the thought police. And the thought police would arrest you if they thought you were thinking something bad about the government. Or they would arrest you if your thoughts did not agree with their thoughts. We're not far away in the day in which we live. We live in the day where tolerance means you must agree with what I think. And that's what George Orwell wrote about. 
But he wrote about the proliferation of spying by your own government for benevolent needs. I I don't want to get into all that, but here's what I want to tell you. Do you know how much you're on camera? I told my wife this week before I even got here, I said, you can barely get away with a crime nowadays because there there is a camera everywhere. So bury that body real deep as we're putting dirt on top of it and... Nobody gets that joke. I keep trying it, and uh, you hardly get on camera. So I got to thinking, where are you on camera the most? And here's what I discovered: that they say the cam- the city you're on camera the most is London, England. There are 500,000 CCTV cameras, closed caption television cameras, that are monitored by the government on a regular basis. 500,000. There are about 18 million people in London. Uh, excuse me, 8 million people in London, that means there is, there is one camera for every 16 people in London. The government put them in and it cost them $400 million over about a four, a five-year period. You say, well, is it effective? Well, get this, everybody in London knows this, that when you're in London, you are recorded on camera 300 times a day. A day. Matter of fact, here's what they say. You are always on camera when you're at a park, on pavement, on a sidewalk, at an entertainment spot, and in all the neighborhoods. I don't know what's left, right? Like this, this looks like all of it to me. Maybe if you go to the restroom, you're not on camera, but probably going in and coming out. Every other place, somebody is watching you. Now, can I tell you for the child of God that that's nothing new for us? As a matter of fact, God would have it that we are aware and we are engaged and we are okay with people watching us. Matter of fact, the Bible says there there are at least two people that are always watching us. Number one, God is always watching us. You say, how do you know? Because number one, he's omnipotent. But number two, uh, the Bible says we'll give an account for every word and action we've ever done on this planet. You'll answer to God. Not if you're a Christian, not for your sins. But after that, you'll give an account for every idle word. That means God is watching every idle word. And listen, you living a life in recognition of God watching you and you living a holy life back to God. You know what that's called? Worship. That's worship. You living a life and giving it as a gift to God is worship because you know he's watching you. Number two, here's what else we know. The world is always watching you. You know what we call that? A witness. Worship is being aware that God is watching me. Witness is being aware that people are watching me. And for the believer, that's not all bad because God wants them watching us so that we can point them to Jesus. God wants us wants them watching us so we, they, we can direct them to Christ. And so if God wants them watching us, then I need to know what God expects from me. In James chapter 1, James tells us. So would you stand with me in honor of reading God's word? And I want us to look in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Here's what James tells us. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness 
an overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Verse 21. Thank you. You may be seated. If we're going to be on display for all the world to see, we've got to be spiritually aware and know what's expected of us. So James comes along and in verse 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21, he tells us, here's what the world is watching. Here's what they're looking for. Here's what they're looking at. And so James dives right in. I'm going to be honest with you. Everybody needs to be aware that James is going to get real personal here in just a moment. So let me just dive in and show you some things that James said. Here's what he said. Number one, if the world is watching us, number one, the good stuff has got to know. The good stuff has got to know. Let, let me tell you what he means by that. In verse 16, he says this, do not be deceived, my, my brother. These are for believers in Christ. And here's what he's telling us. We learned last week that no bad thing, no temptation can come from God. God never deals in darkness. And by the way, the opposite of that is true. The enemy cannot give you good. Now, that's what the enemy is going to come along and try to tell you, that, that the, the enemy offers you good, the devil offers you good, God offers you, offers you bad. We hear it all the time, that man, if, if you live for God, you got all these rules and regulations, it's all bad, but if you live for the devil, you got freedom in your life. No, that could not be true. It's not even possible. The devil doesn't have it within his character to offer you good. God does not have it in his character to offer you bad. And so James comes along and says, hey, don't be deceived about all this. The enemy will try to deceive you. He'll try to get you, the word deceive there means to wander away from the truth. The, the enemy will try to get you to wander away from the truth. And whatever you do, don't buy it. Because the enemy does not want you to understand this next verse. And here's what he says. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. Now, some people translate that, that phrase, every good gift, as all good giving. That everything good that comes to you comes from God. Charles Spurgeon said, every grain of goodness, every trace of excellence that there is on the world comes from God. That everything good in your life is given to you by God. That everything good in your life has been a present from God Almighty. Not only has God always given you good, the second thing you need to know is that God gives a perfect gift. Now, what's the difference between a good gift and a perfect gift? It's amazing that a perfect gift means a gift that exactly fits the situation. I mean, there is giving and then there is perfect giving, right? You experience both of those at Christmas and birthdays, right? A good gift is a Walmart gift card. A perfect gift is a Best Buy gift card, right? Right? A good gift is a Kentucky Fried Chicken gift card, right? Bucket of chicken, that's awesome. A perfect gift is a Chick-fil-A gift card. Baptist chicken, that's what that is. You know, there's a good gift at Christmas. Somebody gives you a new tie, that's awesome. There's a perfect gift, somebody gives you a PlayStation 4, right? There's good gifts. Now, here's what the Bible said, all good giving comes from God. But God is not only in the business of good giving, he is in the business of perfect gift. Now, some of you would say, preacher, a perfect gift for me is not a Best Buy gift card. I get that. That's why it's a perfect gift. God knows exactly what your situation calls for. And there have been times in your life when you didn't know what you were going to do, and God delivered a perfect gift into your life. And here's what James tells us. All of that 
comes from the Father. And notice this, the word comes down is in the perfect tense. It means continually coming down. That God is in heaven and God is continually giving good gifts to you. God is continually pouring out good gifts to you. God is continually giving you perfect gifts. And the Bible says that when God is giving to you, there's no variation or shadow of turning. I know most people read their Bible and are like, I don't know what that means. What does it mean? Can I give you the most basic definition of that? And this is 100% true, a, a, a good definition. Here's what that says. God is not moody. Now some of you men want to say amen right there and some of you women want to say amen right there. Aren't you thankful for somebody in your life that's not moody? Come on. I'm preaching better than you're responding. Aren't you thankful for that? Right? Somebody say, did you get grouchy? Out of, did, you, did you wake up grouchy? No, I left him in bed this morning. I mean, aren't you, I mean, sometimes you don't know what kind of mood you get up in. You don't know what kind of mood your spouse, your kids, your parents get up in. But here's what you know about God. God is not moody. God is not generous one day and stingy the next. God is not giving you good one day and mad at you the next. No, the Bible says there's no variation. So here's what James is trying to tell us in those two verses. That here's what you need to know. That God is the giver of every good thing in your life. Now, what does that mean? Here's what that means. That people are watching you, how you respond to the bad in your life. And you need to know that. When bad comes your way, we heard that in the first sermon. When trials come, people watch how you respond. But can I tell you this? People also watch how you respond to the good in your life. Because there are too many Christians that take the goodness of God and spend it on their own selves. There are too many Christians that take the goodness of God and we live far from God. And what we need to do is take the good and give God the glory and put it on display for the world to see. Because how you handle the good that comes in your life says a lot to the world. If we take all the goodness, we never acknowledge him. We consume it on our own lust. That says a lot to a world that is watching us. And it says all the wrong things. I don't know if you heard about this guy this week. It happened just this week. The FBI arrested him. I don't know him, and I don't mean to talk bad about anyone, but it kind of makes a point today. This guy's name is Jarrell Correa II, and he's kind of infamous now because he became the 23-year-old mayor of Falls River, Massachusetts. Youngest mayor in the history of Massachusetts, I believe. And uh, he... He ran on a campaign that Falls River was just a crumbling town. And he, he, he ran on a campaign, we're going to clean the town up. And I'm a, I'm a tech entrepreneur. And he told everybody that he had invented an app and uh, he'd gotten rich inventing an app. And so they elected him as mayor, this unknown. And he said, I'm going to bring tech companies into Fall River, Falls River. And I'm going to bring millennials into Fall River. And we're going to clean this place up. And this past week, he was arrested on 13 counts of tax and wire fraud. Why? Because he had taken $231,000 that investors had given him to launch his amp, app, and he had spent it on, and I quote, adult entertainment, airfare, a dating service, designer clothes, hotels, jewelry, trips to casinos, and a Mercedes Benz. Do you know what the government calls that? The FBI calls that embezzlement, tax fraud. But before I get too upset at a 23-year-old kid, I'm afraid we as Christians kind of do the same thing. 
that God has always given good into our lives. There's this continual flow of good that comes from God. And if you stop and think about it, listen, I want you to just, don't close your eyes, but I want you to just stop and think for a second. Every good blessing that is coming to your life, the world is watching what you do with that. And what you do with it is screaming loudly at them. And so since we know every good thing comes from God, listen, the good stuff has got to know that God deserves the credit for that, that we deserve, uh, God deserves us taking all that he's good giving us and living our lives for him and giving our lives to the cross and taking up our cross and following God daily. Why? Every good thing comes from the Lord. Listen, don't ever fail to give God the glory for all the good that's in your life. People are watching, so the good's got to know. Second thing I want you to see is people are watching, so the right stuff has got to show He says that in verse number 18. There's a particular word that kind of tells me the right stuff has got to show, and here it is. Verse number 18, he says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, when God started speaking of good things, the first thing he did was talk about our salvation. Hey, if you're born again, Are you thankful that the Lord saved you? Can I get an amen right there? That means you were headed to hell and now you're not. And that's worthy of all the praise. And so uh, James just starts off and says, hey, I want to tell you, the first good gift God gave you was he, he brought you forth. He birthed you by the word of God in the family of God. Well, why did he do that? Here's what he said, that we might be the kind of first fruits. Now that first fruits has a lot of attention in the Bible. The the word first fruits meant that there was an expectation of more to come. As a matter of fact, in Jewish life, There was a first fruits feast. You say that quickly three times in a row. There was a first fruits feast. And and they would go out with this feast and they would get all the first fruits out of their out of their crops and they would bring them and they would throw a feast and, and you say they take yeah they take the very first thing that came out of their crops you know why because they wanted to say say to God God we are celebrating what you've given us but we have faith that there's more to come the bible says Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrected that meant that Jesus was the first fruit of those who would be resurrected and there were more to come that's going to be me and you one day The Bible says that tithing is giving of our first fruits to God. The reason we tithe and give our offerings, we're going to take the offering at the end of the service. You're a guest. We don't expect you to give anything. But here's the reason we as believers tithe. We tithe because that is an acknowledgement. Do you know the Bible says that you're to tithe first? Do you know why? It's an acknowledgement of more to come. When we tithe first, listen, you don't give God what's left. God gets angry about that, as a matter of fact, in every area of your life. No, when we tithe, we tithe first. Why? It is our acknowledging to God that, God, we are giving back to you the first fruits of our increase because we believe more is coming. That is faith in God. And here's what God's saying in verse number 18, that we are the first fruits of Christianity, that God is putting your life on display for the world to see. Here's what God does with your life. God says you are the showpiece of Christianity. There are other people that need to come to faith in Christ, but you're going to be a first fruit. I'm going to put you on display. You're the first taste of Christianity for most people. Uh, you're, You're the window mannequin of Christianity, the first fruit. 
Your life is put on display so for others to see. You are a trophy of the grace of God and you are put on display and God is saying to a lost and dying world, this is what the gospel can do in your life. That's why the right stuff has to show. Because you're a first fruit and people are watching and your life has to display the right stuff. And if you're you show the right stuff it makes the rest of the world say there might be something to that Christianity when my wife cooks she'll uh, often I'll be in my study or something and yesterday she made a cake that I'm in of love she made me a cake it was, it was a depressing day for some people yesterday you know and, and uh, she made a cake and she, she makes that cake and she does it if she cooks anything. She, she's got these little glass bowls. They're just little, I don't know what they're called, but there's these little bitty glass bowls that looks like condiments or something. But she'll, she'll fill one of those up and she'll bring me a plastic spoon and she'll say, hey, it's not ready yet, but it's almost, I, I want you to taste this and tell me what it tastes like. My wife's a good cook. I eat it as fast as I can. And I go, I'm going to need some more before I really know. Why? Because... Here's what she's giving me. She's giving me a taste of what's to come. That's exactly what a first fruit. God was using the illustration of a tree that bore the first fruit. When the first fruits came on the tree, that was a taste of what the tree was going to produce from that point forward. And so here's what God is saying to you. You are a taste of Christianity for a lost and dying world. And so here's what he wants you to do. God wants you to show the world the joy of being a Christian. God wants you to show the world the joy of serving him. God wants you to show the world the joy of living for Jesus. Show them the difference that Christ makes in your family. Show them the difference Christ makes in your finances. Show, him the, show the world the difference he makes in the fears in your life. Show the world the difference, the victory that comes with being a Christian. Show the world the freedom that comes with being a Christian. You've got to show the right stuff to the world why people are watching you. The good stuff has got to know. The right stuff has got to show. And number three, James tells us the bad stuff has got to go. Now, I'm going to be truthful here. James gets downright personal. He leaves the general and he gets specific. You say, of all the things in the world James could talk about, this is what he talks about? Yeah, because of all the things you can get you in trouble, this is what generally does it. So look at what he said. So then my beloved brother, and us Christians, let every person be swift to hear. Literally in the Greek, it means hurry up and listen. And that's not the norm for most of us. Most of us are trying to do the opposite of these first two phrases. We're trying to be slow to hear and swift to speak. But he said, I want you to hurry up and listen. And then he said, I want you to be slow to speak. You know what the best translation of slow to speak is? Try not to talk. Go ahead, try it. It's hard. If you're a talker, we talk. And we have opinions on everything. And we feel like it's our obligation to share them with everybody. James comes along and says, no, no, no. Hurry up and listen. And try not to talk. And don't be getting angry all the time. 
Why? Because getting angry, your wrath does not produce the righteousness of God. So we don't listen well, we talk too much, and it makes us angry, and then here's the problem. Our anger does not help the kingdom of God at all. It hurts the kingdom of God. Well, he keeps getting personal. He said, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Two great words in the Bible. You'd read that and you wouldn't know it, but if you dig a little deeper, the word filthiness there means external grime. The same word used to describe dirty clothes, external grime. The word overflow of wickedness means internal grime. God was saying you have, a, you have an external problem, you have an internal problem, and I need you to lay aside all that. If the world is watching you, you need to lay it aside. The word lay aside is in the aorist tense, which means it's something you do one time and you're done with it. And God is saying, here's what I need you to do. The world is watching you. I need you to lay down all that external grime. I need you to get rid of all of that internal grime. Well, how am I going to do that, God? Here it is. Receive with meekness the word of God, which is able to save your souls. Proverbs is full of verses that tell you listen to instruction. But you know, the truth is, we're not good at listening to instruction. We're not good at listening to reprovement or correction. And here's what God said. I don't want you just to hear it. I want you to be meek about it. Hey, can I put it in terms of a sermon? There's a couple, three things we can do with a sermon. You can listen and ignore. You can listen and and say, I know better, or you can listen and say, no matter what that preacher preaches on, God's got a word for me to hear and obey. And that third thing is what he's talking about here. And when he says able to save your souls, he's not talking about uh, uh, save your souls for salvation. He's talking about able to continually and constantly make you a better Christian, more and more like Jesus. And look this way. People aren't going to buy into Christianity if we're not a good representation and our outside is grimy and our inside is grimy, filthiness and wickedness in our hearts. You, you don't buy into it. Hey, let me tell you, when you go to a new restaurant in a new town, you probably do two things. Same thing I do, same thing you do. You pull out your phone and you check, you check a Yelp or a Google review or a Facebook review, and you see what people are saying. You scroll down through those reviews, and truth be known, if that doesn't have at least four stars, you're probably not going there. You'll look at the, you'll look at the latest reviews. You'll read them. See, well, I do it every time when I travel. If somebody has 2.7 stars, I ain't going. I don't care how good the commercial is. But there's something else you do. Here's what my wife does. She goes into a restaurant, and this is what she looks at. She doesn't go to the menu she doesn't go to the manager. She walks straight to this sign. You familiar with that? That is their restaurant scorecard. There are people in our church, you, many, several people own restaurants. You're familiar with this? I don't, I don't know if 86 is bad or not. B's and good are school, so I'm assuming B's are good in a restaurant. I was going to put the worst restaurant reviews, and I couldn't stomach them. I couldn't take them. But you know what you do? You go in. See, that Yelp review is a review of the external. How's the food taste? This review is a review of the internal. What's going on on the inside? And if both these are bad, you know what you say? Never mind. 
And when we talk about external and internal, we talk about our speech. We, we live in a day and age now where I've got to talk about these things. I've written one book in my life. It was on church and social media. I wrote it in 2011. And by the time I published it, it was, too, it was out of date as any book on social media is nowadays. But I wrote it in 2011 to encourage pastors to be evangelistic and how to do it on social media. And because of that book, from time to time, I get asked around the nation to come teach seminars on social media. Why? Because our social media is an indicator of what God is doing in our lives. Now, let me be careful and say this. I think social media is a gift from God. But it's a gift from God to reach a lost and dying world. And so, some of you would say, well, Preacher, I'm, I don't say too much. I don't talk too much. I listen okay. Somebody told me in the choir a minute ago, said the first thing HR departments do now is check social media postings. But can I tell you, a lost and dying world is doing the same thing. So can I share with you some things I teach when I go around the nation and teach on this? Can I give you three or four things that I think will help us conform to what James was telling us? Number one is this. Your opinion should not be louder than your witness. You say, well, preacher, are you tell me I can't give it. No, I'm not saying anybody can't give an opinion. I, I can give an opinion on Facebook, I, I can give an opinion. Georgia bad, Tennessee, Georgia good, Tennessee bad. I see a, it's a bad day for me all the way around. It's a bad day. It's a bad day. I can't get it right. I need to stop. I'm not saying you can't be a wit. You, you can't give an opinion on, fa on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or what, Snapchat or whatever. Here's what I'm saying. Your witness should be louder. People ought to know you love Jesus more than they know you love your opinion. And look, hey, can I say this? I said, I, everyone hear me. I didn't look at anybody's Facebook yesterday. I'm not a really good Facebook looker. I post more than I, than I look, and I'm just too busy. And, and I know I don't look at Instagram a whole lot. I don't, I don't look at Twitter maybe a little bit more than any of them, but I don't look at them a whole lot. I didn't see anybody. I didn't sit down yesterday and say, I'm going to write these things down because of what I saw. I didn't do that. I, this stuff I teach anyway. And I, I, here's my promise to you. I won't go look today. How's that? I'll give you time to... Scrub it clean, all right? And so, so everybody be, everybody chill. You, your opinion should not be louder than your witness. There's, if there's one thing people ought to get from your social media, it's that guy, that gal loves Jesus. Number two, disputes and disagree, disagreements are not for public display. Can, can we not use public forum? to do things Christ tells us to do privately. If you have a problem with someone, the Bible says in Matthew 18, first go to Facebook and start your post this way. I shouldn't say this. Hey, if, you're, if, you, if you write Facebook posts and they often start off with, I shouldn't say this, then you probably shouldn't. Here's a good rule. When in doubt, leave it out. Don't attack people on social media. We want everybody to be saved. That's every single bite. That's every single person. We want to come to faith in Christ. So don't take disputes and disagreements to social media. That's not where they're for. Matthew 18 says, go to them privately. Number three, don't post pictures that are inappropriate. I think I can sum it all up this way. If you would not answer the door in it, 
I don't need to see it on social media. Right? That doesn't need any more description, does it? Doesn't matter where you are. Number four, don't pass the trash. Say, what do you mean by that? I'm saying, me like you, there's funny stuff out there. There's serious stuff out there. We all like to retweet and repost, and that's great, man. I, I love it. I'm not against any of that. But can I encourage you to dig a little deeper? Sometimes you'll, 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 you may want to repost something that what you're reposting is, is very benign. There's nothing wrong with it at all. But before you repost it, because a repost, no matter what you say, is considered an endorsement. And sometimes you need to click another level or two because you're leading people to another site that may be filled with profaneness, that may be filled with filthiness, that may be filled with sin. So don't just randomly hit repost on a bunch of stuff. Don't pass the trash. Why? Because somebody's watching you. The bad has got to go offline and online. Would you close your Bibles with me and just listen to me for another two or three minutes? Your witness is too important. Did you hear me? Your witness is too important. Can I say this? And I don't mean to be hyper-spiritual or over-spiritual, but it's just the truth. Every single person that you are connected with online and offline is going to spend eternity in a place called heaven or a place called hell. And you don't have an enemy. You don't have one enemy that you want to die and go to hell. Not one. You don't have one person who disagrees with you that you want to die and go to hell. Not one. You say, preacher, we couldn't be farther apart. It doesn't matter. Listen, the Bible says in the book of Revelation that there's coming a time where Jesus is going to have to wipe from the Christian every tear from our eye. Do you know why he's going to have to do that? Because we've just witnessed the great white throne judgment. And we've just seen people we were connected with who were thrown into an eternal hell. And it's going to be more than you can take. And it's going to take a supernatural act of God to calm you emotionally for eternity. And to wipe away those tears from your eyes. I don't want anything I post on social media to hinder somebody from being saved. I don't want anything I post on social media to hinder somebody from coming to Christ. I don't want any, anything in my life, external or internal, to hinder people from coming to faith in Christ. And people are watching you. Everywhere you go. All these parents that just dedicated a child. You think they're not watching, not paying attention. You slip up and say something you shouldn't say. And I promise you, as soon as they can talk, it'll be the first word out of their mouth. Why? Because they were watching and listening and you didn't even know it. When you go to work, when you go to school, when you go out in the community, wherever you may go, there are people watching you and you don't even know it. So what do we do? The good stuff has got to know and give glory to God. Hey, I've been blessed with people in my life. I don't know if you've ever been this way. I've been blessed with people in my life. I can name several right now. There are people in my life that, that they thank God for every good blessing. Have you ever, you ever had somebody like that in your life? Like, I've had a guy in my life, he, he, you, give him a, you, give him a, you give him a half a bottle of water, he'd be like, preacher, come here. I'm gonna show you what God gave me. He gave me this water when I was thirsty. And I'd be like, man, I got a whole case of those at home. But he's like, I just wanna tell you, God's so good to me. 
And then I look at all the blessings in my life and think, why don't I, why am I not that way? But tell you, tell you what those people do. You may be one of them. When you give God the glory for everything, for all the goodness, people pay attention. And it says to them, you serve a good God. That's why the good stuff has got to know where it came from. That's why the right stuff has got to show you are on display for all the world to see. And they need to see joy, the joy of Christ. And the bad stuff has got to go because people are watching. People are watching to see if you take Christianity real or if you're just like them, but you happen to go to church some on Sundays. No, the bad stuff has got to go. Because somebody, people, they're watching us. Many of them are making the decision on coming to Christ based on what they see in us. Would you stand with me with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Savior, we're going to have staff members down at the front. I'm going to have one on your left and one on your right. If you'd like to become a Christian today, I want to invite you down to take one of them by the hand and say, I want to become a Christian. It's as simple as ABC. A, admit you're a sinner and can't save yourself. B, believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose again the third day. And C, confess him as the Lord and Savior of your life. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week, helping you to apply God's word to your daily life. For more information about Peavine, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and at our website, www.peavine.org. Thanks for listening.